Welcome back to Cradle of Analytics. In this episode, I'm going to explain how I came to realize there is a blind spot in Western thinking. You can think of this episode as a kind of a Rosetta Stone or secret decoder ring for the rest of this podcast. And even if you don't entirely get the point of the story I'm about to tell you, that's okay. Because for me personally, it took a very long time for me to see the deeper meaning of what, what I'm about to get into. I'll also say that after listening to all of the episodes, after listening to episode 10 of this series, you might want to come back um, and re-listen to this episode as it'll make more sense by that point. And the reason I can't simply give you a quick explanation is that the point I'm making can really only be made through a bottom-up argument that really requires me to lay out a series of examples um, over the course of history. So what is the story I'm talking about here? Well, my entry into the rabbit hole uh, all started with an article about the Flynn effect I read several years ago. And for those that um, of you that haven't heard of the Flynn effect, it was first raised by James Flynn, who observed that IQ scores have been steadily increasing over the past 100 years or so. And we still don't actually know if this is um, if people are actually becoming more intelligent or, or not, and it's actually a matter that still continues to be investigated. But at the time when I read the article, and unfortunately I, I no longer have it, the author brought up a possible explanation of the Flynn effect, namely that intelligence itself could be taught. And this is where things get interesting. The author then points to an example of a sociologist who interviewed the headman of a primitive tribe, ostensibly somewhere in Russia, that was, um, the headman was unable to decipher a basic logical statement. And in the example, the sociologist tells the headman of the tribe the following, quote, where there is always snow, bears are white, end quote. And then he asks the man, quote, at the North Pole, there is always snow, what color are the bears there? End quote. And then the, the headman um, then replies, quote, I don't know. I've only seen brown bears. And, end quote. And then the sociologist says, quote, I understand, but what do my words convey? End quote. And finally, the headman responds by saying, quote, such a thing is not settled by words, but by testimony. End quote. Now, after reading this, I was a bit shocked because I found it hard to believe that someone couldn't figure out such a simple puzzle. It seemed very trivial to me. And by the way, this type of puzzle is known as a syllogism. Then I thought, hmm, maybe there's some, some truth to this. Maybe I've, I've taken the logical thing for granted. Maybe it does make somebody smarter if they are able to think logically. But something still didn't really sit well with me here. And so eventually I tracked down the source of this quote to learn more about the context. And it turns out the quote is taken from a book called The Foundations of Primitive Thought, which was first published in 1979 and was written by Christopher Hallpike, who's a cognitive psychologist. And in this book, I discovered that the sociologist um, being referred to here, his name is Luria, and he was in fact speaking with an illiterate peasant of Central Asia, and he was speaking with the man actually in 1976, from a remote village near Kashgar, um, and it's, that's a town located in present-day western China. Although ethnically, this person would be would resemble somebody um, more like somebody from Nepal or Afghanistan, Afghanistan, as opposed to ethnically somebody who uh, looks Chinese. 
So just giving you some sort of um, more descriptive info there. And this was uh, actually not an indigenous tribe, as I recall from the original article, but rather it was actually just a small village populated with mainly just illiterate people who happen to be Muslim. Okay, now I'll read you the full exchange. So here it goes. Sociologist. In the far north, where there is snow, and by the way, I'm, I'm speaking as the, when I say sociologist, I'm speaking as the part of the sociologist, and when I say peasant, I'm speaking as the part of the, um, the peasant. Okay, start again. Sociologist. In the far north, where there is snow, all bears are white. Novia Zemlia is in the far north, and there is always snow there. What color are the bears there? Peasant. There are different sorts of bears. Sociology. Sociologist. He repeats the same syllogism about the far north and the bears and the white and all that. Peasant. I don't know. I've seen a black bear. I've never seen any others. Each locality has its own animals. If it's white, they will all be white. If it's yellow, they will be yellow. Sociologist. But what kind of bears are there in Novia Zemlia? Peasant. We always speak only of what we see. We don't talk of what we haven't seen. Sociologists. But what do my words imply? And he repeats the same syllogism again. In the far north, there's snow. All bears are white. Novia Zemlia is in the far north, and there's always snow there. What color the bears there? Okay, so he repeats that. Peasant. Well, it's like this. Our czar isn't like yours, and yours isn't like ours. Your words can be answered only by someone who was here, and if, per- and if a person wasn't there, he can't say anything on the basis of your words. Sociologist. But on the basis of my words, in the north, where there is always snow, the bears are white. Can you gather what kind of bears there are in Novia Zemlia? Peasant. If a man was 60 or 80 and had seen a white bear and had, and had told about it, he could be believed. But I've never seen one, and hence I can't say. That's my last word. Those who saw can tell, and those who didn't can't say anything. And then in brackets, the um, author writes a note. At this point, a young Uzbek volunteered, quote, from your words, it means that the bears are white. So that's another person talking. Sociologist. Well, which of you is right? Speaking between the boy and the man he's talking to. Peasant. What the cock knows how to do, he does. What I know, I say, and nothing beyond that. Okay, that's the end of the dialogue. Now, as you can see from this dialogue, this paints a rather different picture from what I originally recall reading and remembering. First of all, we can see that the youngster um, near the end, he instantly figures out the correct answer. So clearly there's not an intelligence. Um, There's nothing, this is not an issue of intelligence or cognitive development. And if we look more closely at the answer the man is giving, we can see that he's more hesitant and, and he's being really more cautious than he is confused. It's almost like the sociologist and the, the peasant subject are talking past one another. And to me, it feels like the sociologist is just getting frustrated with the Kashgar man. And the Kashgar man in, in turn seems like he's avoiding some kind of a trap, like that, you know, as if he feels like he's being tricked into something. And this is an, there's an important point here I want to make, and I will return to it in a moment. But first, I want to bring up one other thing that Hall Pike discusses in his book. Later on in the section, in the, sa- the same section of Foundations of Primitive Thought, uh, Hall Pike explains 
that in order to, to be able to formulate more complex thoughts, such as a syllogism, then literacy is necessary. But it's not the reading part of literacy that's important here, it's the writing part. And Hallpike refers to this as conscious reflection. And I would wholeheartedly agree that conscious reflection is necessary for formulating more complicated ideas and concepts. That said, to play devil's advocate, there may be other ways of breaking this conscious reflection barrier through other means. In other words, there might be other ways of accomplishing it without writing. So, for example, ancient Vedic sages in India, going back nearly 4,000 years uh, ago, developed intricate oral traditions using forms of repetition, rhyming, bodily movement, and music to memorize lengthy texts, and from there were able to transmit and elaborate on these texts over time. And using these techniques, Vedic sages were able to develop their own formulation of analytics, which we'll discuss later. I'll also point out that conscious reflection has changed over the years with technology, especially now with tools like spreadsheets and search engines that allow us to quickly get feedback on ideas and questions in ways that were not possible before. But let's get back to our illiterate Kashgar friend. Why would he be so hesitant to use basic deductive reasoning, and what does he have against it? Now, I'm going to answer that question in a bit, but first I need to tell you something that you might not realize. While deductive reason is, reasoning is commonplace around the world now, it's in fact an unnatural way to think. The natural way to think is through inductive reasoning, and inductive reasoning basically comes down to be able to identify patterns um, through examples and draw connections through analogies. So, for, in, for instance, most of us assume that no person can be taller than nine feet tall simply because um, we have seen so many people and we have a sort of a sense of ranges of heights. But nobody can prove this to be true because we arrived at this conclusion inductively. There is no deductive proof of that. Now, given that inductive reasoning is natural and deductive reasoning is unnatural, we should expect to find regions of the world that developed without deductive reasoning. Um, unfortunately, few such places likely exist any longer to this day, and that's because deductive thinking has simply taken over the world. Analytical thinking is no longer the domain of so-called Western countries, but is now woven into the modern world to such an extent that it's hard to imagine a time that it did not exist. But this is actually how most of the world was, believe it or not, if you go back like 400 years ago. And this is actually how China was for most of its history. And to be clear, China and Chinese people have absolutely no problems with deductive reasoning. It just wasn't part of their culture until it was introduced to them in the 17th century by Jesuit missionaries. Now, I'll talk more about the meeting of the minds of those Jesuit missionaries with um, Chinese intellectuals in episode six of this podcast series, but for now, what's important to realize is that by comparing and contrasting the history of Chinese culture and other Confucian cultures like Korean and Japanese cultures to so-called Western cultures, like European essentially, which as I've mentioned earlier, is really more of a metaculture that emerged from Mesopotamia that was later codified in the Mediterranean. And to, rem to remind you, as I mentioned in this podcast introduction, it was not for lack of ability that China did not embrace deductive thinking. In fact, as I shall explain later in this podcast, there was a Chinese school of philosophy, not unlike what existed in Greece, that did produce the, the fruits 
of deductive analytical logic. However, as you shall see, there was no demand for these talents or this form of thinking. And this is ultimately because China did not have the demand drivers, um, the analytical demand drivers, which are, to remind you, uh, diversity of population, sort of diverse groups of people, multiculturalism, uh, the second being leveraged finance, like interest, and the third being sovereign law, like contract law, um, which were which were present in the Eastern Mediterranean and before then in Mesopotamia, but just not in China. Now, based on this insight regarding China and its related Confucian cultures like Korea and uh, Japan, we might expect there to be different norms with regards to how these cultures approach thinking. And with this in mind, I explicitly set off to find, and I eventually did find, a scientific study that demonstrates that there are, in fact, um, salient and measurable differences in how we approach thinking that um, have been, you know, concretely measured. And had I not gone down the original rabbit hole with that illiterate Kashgar peasant and that white, that you know, that white bear syllogism, I would never have even thought to look for this scientific paper. So in many ways, it was very validating, at least for my own sanity, to have found this paper. So the paper. It was um, developed by Emma E. Buchtel and Ara Norenzian. Sorry if I mispronounced the names. Uh, and it was first published in October 2008 and is titled, quote, Which Should You Use, Intuition or Logic, Cultural Differences in Injunctive Norms About Reasoning, end quote. Now, the paper describes the results from two separate studies conducted to learn if there are cultural biases surrounding logic and intuition, which is to say deductive versus inductive reasoning, when comparing East Asian to European groups. Now, I don't have time to explain the second study since it's quite involved, very thorough actually, although it does entirely corroborate the, the findings in the first study. But the first study is, is fairly straightforward, and I'm going to explain it to you. So in the first study, the researchers split their subjects into two groups. And the first group is the European group, which was based off of Canadian students uh, with a European heritage. And the second group was the East Asian group, and that was based off of a group of South Korean students. Now, each group was then asked to rank the importance of t 10 different uh, traits. Uh, these are traits about a person. And the traits were uh, ambitious, logical, that's an important one, punctual, adventurous, intelligent, sociable, self-confident, intuitive, that's the other important one, happy, and reliable. So logic and intuition were essentially buried or hidden in that sort of group of 10 so as not to draw particular attention to them because, you know, you didn't want the subjects to know that this is exactly what they're being tested for. And what the result of the test showed was that the European-Canadian group um, showed no statistically significant preference for either logic over intuition or vice versa. However, they did show in reality a slight preference towards logic, but it was very small, so it was not considered to be statistically significant. But the Korean students, on the other hand, showed a very different result. 
and the South Koreans showed a statistically significant preference for intuition, or shall we say bottom-up thinking, over logic, over top-down deductive thinking. And in one regard, this is fascinating, since it plays against the Asian stereotype of being adept in mathematics and computer science, which we kind of tend to associate with deductive top-down thinking. But if you understand the cultural history of both Chinese and Europeans, then this is the result we would expect and how I was able to find it. So, you know, again, it's a kind of a, it's sort of counterintuitive for a lot of people, but this is the exact result I expected after doing all of my prior research. Now, I should also point out that the authors write in their introduction, quote, Given these cross-cultural differences, there has been surprisingly little systematic psychological investigation into the extent to which reasoning modes are laden with cultural values. Thus, the following studies address the question, do East Asian and Western cultural participants have different injunctive norms about reasoning? End quote. And the answer is, of course, a resounding yes, at least as far as what the study shows. But I think that, again, you could run the study again, you'd get the same result. Maybe not in 20 years from now, but I think today. The authors then spend some time speculating as to why these differences might be, and I'll read you this key excerpt from their paper in the conclusions. Quote, If success in interpersonal situations depends on holistic reasoning, while success in other kinds of problematic situations depends on analytical reasoning, then it is likely that pro-holistic and pro-analytic norms would be found in all cultures, depending on the situation. Alternatively, values about intuitive versus logical thinking may be culture-specific. For example, rather than pro-analytic values being a natural outgrowth of independent self-concepts and impersonal situations, they may depend on whether a society has been influenced by pro-logic philosophical traditions as Greek philosophy and the Enlightenment area influenced. End quote. Okay, I have to stop them there. And this is where I think we part ways. Now, while it might be fun to think that a Greek philosopher like Aristotle may have single-handedly convinced entire cultures to think in this analytical way, this doesn't really make a lot of sense at another level. This implies, this would imply that China and other civilizations were simply unable to figure out deductive reasoning. And it also implies, which I don't believe, which actually I'm going to show you in a moment is completely untrue. And that paper also kind of implies a sort of a great man theory around Aristotle. And I don't believe in great man theories. Um, and both of these assumptions are, I'm, I'm, I feel very confident in my bones, flat out wrong, and I'll explain why. But first I want to return to our Kashgar um, peasant and give him a chance to respond in a slightly different way. Now, not to digress, but as you might know, there's an old trope in Western philosophy and literature known as the noble savage. And it was most eloquently argued by the 18th century Swiss-French Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who argued in his book Discourse in, on Inequality that modern man has been corrupted by materialism. Now, the magazine The Economist, I thought, wrote a very nice summary of Rousseau's argument, and I'm going to quote it for you here. Quote, Rousseau explains that mankind is truly free only in the state of nature. There, the notion of inequality is meaningless because the primitive human being is solitary and has nobody to look up to or down to upon. The rot set in when a person first fenced off some land and declared, 
this is mine. Equality disappeared, property was introduced, labor became necessary, and the vast forests changed to smiling fields that had to be watered with sweat of men, with the sweat of men, where slavery and poverty were soon seen to germinate and grow along with the crops. End quote. Now, Rousseau was not the first to opine about this simple beauty, the simplicity of um, the pre-materialistic uh, lifestyle. And in fact, 1,500 years earlier than this, in the year 98 CE, the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus wrote in his book Germania about a group of people that he encountered or had heard about uh, known as the Feni people, who were purported to live uh, in what is modern-day Estonia uh, in the Baltics. And this is what Tacitus wrote in um, his book Germania. Quote, In wonderful savageness lives the nation of the Feni, and in beastly poverty, destitute of arms, of horses, and of homes, their food the common herbs, their apparel skins, their bed the earth, their only hope in their arrows which for want of iron they point with bones. Their common support they have from the chase, women as well as men, for with these the former wander up and down and crave a portion of the prey. Nor other shelter have they even for their babes against the violence of tempests and ravening beasts than to cover them with the branches of trees twisted together, this a reception for the old men, and hither resort the young." Such a condition they judge more happy than the painful occupation of cultivating the ground, than the labor of rearing houses, than the agitations of hope and fear attending the defense of their own property or the seizing that of others. Secure against the designs of men, secure against the malignity of the gods, they have accomplished a thing of infinite difficulty, that to them nothing remains even to be wished." End quote. Very eloquently written. I, I, I wish I could write like that. But this is, I think, you know, a trope. I could call it a trope. I feel like it's maybe not the right word. But I would say that this idea, this trope, it, it's very strong to this day. And if you've seen movies like Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner or that movie um, Nell with Jodie Foster, those are, those are good examples. I'd say more recently that the movie uh, Avatar... Um, very much embraces the the noble savage concept, and and also the the latest uh, Planet of the Apes trilogy. I think is very much a a celebration of this idea. But so putting it in simpler terms, the noble savage trope is really about a Westerner caught up in modern Western trappings like junk food, the rat race, and gambling, and then learns that the best things in life are free or something to that effect. Honestly, though, it can actually come across as a bit of a trite cliche. So on that note, I want to rewrite the dialogue with the Kashgar man as a way of perhaps, perhaps breathing new life into this otherwise uh, stale trope. Okay, so here's, my, here's sort of my take on the noble savage uh, trope, but we're going to kind of redo that, that dialogue that we had earlier involving uh, our, our sociologist and the Kashgar peasant. So here we go. Quote, sociologist, in the far north where there is snow, all bears are white. Novia Zemlia is in the far north, and there is always snow there. What color are the bears there? Peasant, there are different sorts of bears. Sociologist, repeats the syllogism. Peasant, 
I don't know. I've seen a black bear. I've never seen any others. Each locality has its own animals. If it's white, they will all be white. If it's yellow, they will, they will be yellow. Sociologist. But what kind of bears are there in Novia Zemlia? Peasant. We always speak only of what we see. We don't talk of what we haven't seen. Sociologist. But what do my words imply? The syllogism repeated. Peasant. I can see I'm not getting through to you here, and you are deeply confused. Namely, your preference for top-down analytical thinking has caused you to confuse scientific thinking with legal thinking. Look, you already know the answer to the question because you have seen firsthand a white bear or know someone who happen, you happen to trust who has. You know this not because someone strung a bunch of words together to form a syllogism and you were able to answer the question. You just know this from the ground truth of perception and or trusted testimony. But since I don't have that perception or friend's testimony, I am forced to take on a legalistic mode of thinking to arrive at this conclusion. But here is the problem. If I base everything on just your words and your words alone, I set myself up to be tricked or swindled. I'll give you an example. My cousin rented a car and was told he would not have to pay any penalty as long as he did not drive beyond a certain number of kilometers. But they charged him all the same and claimed that the previous kilometers that the last driver left behind also count. And what my cousin realized is that the contract did not explicitly exclude those, those kilometers, and so he had to pay the penalty. In my village, that car renter would be reprimanded for such deceit, but there was nothing my cousin could do because he signed a contract. So can you now see why I'm a bit cautious about answering your question? I have a reputation to maintain here, and I can't base my knowledge on a bunch of flimsy words. I need something more substantial than that. Sociologist. Oh, I see. I had not thought of it this way. Well, I will return to my homeland as a new and enlightened man. Actually, on the other hand, I don't know what you meant by that. Sorry. Peasant. It's okay. Now, I don't mean to break through the fourth wall here, but I encourage you to listen to the rest of Neil's podcast. It might make more sense to you. Sociologist. Got it. Will do, sir. And it was nice to meet you. End of, end of quote, end of dialogue. Okay, now in episode five of this podcast, I'm going to provide another example involving this Kashgar man that shows how if the sociologist had instead used an Indian formulation of logic as opposed to the Greek formulation that dominates Western thinking, then he may have got a, a different result. But the important point that I really want to make here is that neither the sociologist nor Christopher Hallpike, the author of Foundations of Primitive Thought, nor the author of the article I read about in the magazine about the Flynn effect, nor myself, and maybe that's the most important here, believed that this Kashgar man was intelligent. We were all kind of fooled into thinking that he was somehow cognitively underdeveloped. But in reality, we're the fools for not recognizing that deductive analytical thinking is a form of intelligence. It's really not. It's just a simple skill, and it can often mislead you. But this is still hard for most people to get their heads around, and it's hard to see and feel the analytical water for what it is. So to better understand the underlying nature of deductive analytical thinking, we need to first understand how logic was independently formulated in different parts of the world. And to start, it's most important to first understand how logic and analytics came about in Greek antiquity 
and at how it was intended to be used. On that note, I should explain who Aristotle was and how he came up with the idea of the syllogism, deductive reasoning, and analytics. I'll then explain how he intended this to all be used. So stay tuned for that next episode.